Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's Word. Well, good morning. I apologize. I'm walking a little crooked. I did something on my back the other day, and uh, I'm 42, and someone told me, Heath, when you turn 40, that's when you start throwing your back out when you sneeze. And I think they're right, but I rebuke that in Jesus' name, right? I have a feeling I will get on the plane and go home completely healed. So, you know, what's interesting is it actually fits with what I want to talk about in just a few minutes. Um, I've seen God heal probably tens of thousands of people. Just seen God do amazing things. Job is right. God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. But every now and then you encounter a situation that doesn't line up with what you know to be true about God. I remember a few years ago watching God heal a girl who was born deaf. And the very next week, my wife, Allie, I'll talk about her in a moment. She was in the hospital and what should have been just a routine medical procedure, we almost lost her. I remember the doctor looking at me and saying, we have a 48-hour window. And it was the worst moment of my life. And I remember having a conversation with God uh, in the hospital room. I'm praying, I'm fasting, contending for the breakthrough, doing what you would do. And the conversation I'm having with God is, God, if you can heal the deaf girl, why aren't you healing my wife? How many of you know that's real, right? And God did heal my wife, but it took six months. And um, what I've learned is, as a Christ follower, we don't memorize Jesus, we become like him. And one of the primary ways we become like Jesus is when we accept the invitation and we step into a situation that does not line up Uh, with what we know to be true about God. And so it's important that we don't reduce our God so that we can explain our situation. Instead, we choose to trust God even if our situation gives us a reason not to. And that's what I want to talk to you about today briefly, how it's okay to cry out to God more than once for your breakthrough and for your miracle. And so if you have a Bible, an iPhone, a Droid, a Galaxy, you brought your tablet, whatever. If you have nothing, I think it will be on the screens behind me. But we will be in Matthew chapter 20 in just a few minutes. Um, Before we get there, I just want to thank God for his mercy and his grace. God's mercy is when God gives us what we don't deserve. God's grace is when he gives us what we do not deserve. And I owe everything to him. I met, I met Jesus when I was 17. Um, the first Bible I ever read was the Satanic Bible. And so as a young child, I was devoting that to memory. I was introduced to the occult and Satanism as an elementary age boy. And so as a young child, I had a tangible proof that what you don't see is much more real than anything you do see. And so, you know, I remember the first time watching the candle float off of the table The first time moving the chair across the floor with my eyes. And you can't really have a conversation with the evil one very long before you find yourself going down a road you wish you would have never traveled down. So I just had a lot of issues. And um, uh, God spoke to a young girl in eighth grade. Is there anybody here in eighth grade? Let me see your hands. Okay, God spoke to a young girl in eighth grade in the hallway. You see that young boy over there at the locker. Pray for him. I have a call on his life. You're going to marry him one day. So how many of you know, she did not walk up to me and say, guess what God just said. How many of you know that happens every week at youth group, right? And God God tells the young boy he's going to marry someone different the next week. So 
So what she did do, however, is she went home and talked to her mom. And thank God for a mom who was present. You know, we, we transform nations when we listen to our kids. There is no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. And God speaks to five-year-olds just like he does 55-year-olds. Are you with me? She went home and talked to her mom, and her mom dared to listen. So they began to pray, and for three and a half years they prayed. They interceded as well. And um, at the age of 17, when I met Christ, um, just in this small little church in the middle of Des Moines, Iowa, I was instantaneously changed, healed. I went through deliverance, and the Lord, the Lord had mercy on me. And I'm the, I'm the first Christian that we know of who's ever existed in my ancestry. And the day after meeting the Lord, I received a letter in the mail. For those under the age of 20, your parents receive stuff called mail, and it's paper, and they open up a metal box and pull it out. Well, I received a letter in the mail, and it was written by that young girl in eighth grade, five pages long. She answered all of the questions I used to ask her about God, things like, hey, if God is real, why do these things happen? Or um, how do you know that Jesus is who he says he is? And I received that letter in the mail the day after meeting Christ. And I remember thinking, I'm not the only one who knows him. So after I married that girl, I remember reading in her prayer journals, upper right-hand corner, 2.53 a.m., God, reveal yourself to Heath. So I'm the product of a young girl who dared to listen when the Spirit spoke. The product of a mom who dared to listen when her daughter needed to pray, and I'm the product of the mighty one who has, who has mercy. <laughs> and so he is more real now than he's ever been. And um, so I'm just honored to be here. I'm honored to talk to you about him. So Pastor Al, Pastor Christy, thank you for the opportunity just to be with you in your community. So on the screens behind me, I believe, is my family. And so you'll see Allie um, and I have been married 22 years. We have two kids, two kids in college. So how many of you know you have to pay for college, right? <laughs> so two kids in college. And I live in a home with girly girls. So we, we watch a lot of Hallmark. <laughs> is there anybody, have, any men in the room having Hallmark hangover? I mean, we had, we had Christmas and you had Valentine's. And so I needed a little extra testosterone in the house, so we did what you did, what you would do. We got a golden doodle, and so that's our dog. And so I, I mow my lawn with my golden doodle, so that's guy time. That's how we have, that's when I have bromance, bromageddon, I mow my lawn with my dog. So that's what I do. Um, my latest book comes out in a few weeks. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really excited about it. There's a story in Mark 5 where Jesus encounters someone who is so tormented he forgot his name. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And I devoted five years to studying that story. And um, I'm excited to share it with the world. Um, if you want to save a few bucks, you can pre-order it. Uh, it. It will be available everywhere books are sold. And if you're interested in, a, in some free resource, just go to my website, heathadamson.com. And I'll send you some things. That way you can make disciples, maybe with your family. And, and you won't get charged for that stuff. So it's just my opportunity to bless you and serve you. And part of what I want to talk to you about today is found in that book. Um, 
And today I want to talk to you about somebody who was, who was desperate and hurting. You know, my work with Convoy of Hope, I come in contact with people on a regular basis who are desperate and hurting. And it's not just those who are in third world countries. How many of you know there are a lot of people here in the United States who have a better brand of misery? And so at Convoy of Hope, we believe that the greatest epidemic in the world is hopelessness. And so we take seriously um, the, uh, the commandment of Jesus to love and serve the poor. And hope is a human right. And we know when we look at the Gospels that there are times when you serve the poor expecting nothing in return. You know, when Jesus fed the multitude, he did not give an altar call. A week ago, I was in India where I gazed into the eyes of young girls, the age of 10, 11, who are sold into prostitution for the equivalent of 200 American dollars by their parents usually. Uh, we're not okay with that. We're feeding them, educating them, one person at a time, seeing them come to Christ. A few weeks before that, I was in Greece where I was touring some of the refugee camps where we do work. There are four million refugees from Syria, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Met somebody who walked at the age of 12 from Afghanistan, and now he's in a refugee camp in Greece. Walked from Afghanistan to Greece. Um, there are hundreds of thousands of children who are all alone, and we're seeing God do unbelievable things. We're feeding them, we're sharing the gospel with them, providing clean drinking water, teaching girls that gender inequality is not found in the Bible, that men and women are created in the image of God, and that it's not okay for women to wake up uh, in the morning and feel like they're only good to get married and have babies. Instead, that there is a divine purpose deposited within each human being, including women. And so we are interested in eradicating gender inequality in our women's empowerment program and our girls' empowerment programs. We work with scientists. We have a team of really smart farmers who have PhDs and everything else to help end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty. We partner with the church. That's what sets us apart. We partner with the church. It is the only organization Jesus promised to build. And so we feed, we feed about 300,000 kids every day, uh, public schools around the world, because when you feed a child at school, they receive an education, and when they are educated, you can help end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty. And we've recently served our 115 millionth person, and um, we believe that God has only just begun. So what I do at Convoy of Hope is everything we do outside of the United States, I have the privilege of, of serving that team. So we serve a lot of hurting people, and today I want to talk to you about God's response to someone who is hurting. You know, in Genesis 2, it says that, well, let me back up. In Genesis 1, God speaks and galaxies form. It's a true story. It really happened. God speaks and galaxies form. But when God created humanity, God did not speak. Genesis 2.7 says God scoops up a mound of dirt and breathes. God speaks and the universe begins, but God saves his breath for us. We were created and formed for the breath of God. The first sound Adam would have heard would have been God breathing. And I would suggest to you it is possible to be so close to God 
that even when you don't hear his voice, you can hear him breathing. That we were created for the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God. And our purpose and destiny is to cultivate and develop a never-ending encounter with Jesus. John 16 says, the Spirit guides us into all truth. That's, that means so much more than just when I'm asked a question, I don't know how to answer it, so God gives me an answer. Um, God does that, don't get me wrong. Jesus said, don't worry about what to say at the proper time. My spirit will give you the words to say. But it's more than that because truth is not a philosophical concept. It is not an educational achievement. Truth is a person. So when it says he guides us into all truth, he's saying in essence that the heart of Jesus is significant and magnificent. And it is by partnering with the spirit where we can discover all who he is. We were created to have this never-ending, unlimited encounter with the face of God. And it is possible to get so close to God to where when you gaze into the eyes of Jesus, you catch a reflection of who you really are. Our identity is found in intimacy and encounter with him. And at the end of the day, you and I are as close to God as we want to be. And in the book, The Sacred Chase, that's coming out, it's all about moving from proximity to intimacy. I want to talk to you about it for just a moment. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29, I believe. Yeah, verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, O Lord, Son of David, Have mercy on us. And then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. And Jesus stood still, and he called them. And he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. And Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. So in order to understand what the Bible means, we have to understand what it meant. When you read the Bible, you either read what you believe or you believe what you read. It's important that when we approach Scripture, we just let it it communicate from the context that it's found in rather than using the Bible to back up our opinions. Are you with me? So in verse 29, it says, they went out of Jericho and they followed him. Who is they? Who is him? They is a group of people who are following Jesus. Some of them are disciples. Jesus had more than 12 disciples, but for the most part, most of the gospel interaction with disciples is focused on uh, the, the primary 12. And him is Jesus. So who is Jesus? Jesus is a Hebrew man who spoke Aramaic, and yet his teachings are recorded in Greek. When he and his parents are no longer refugees and they come back from Egypt and they settle down into his hometown, we know, according to the gospel record that is, that he never really travels more than 100 miles from his hometown. So he's not a world traveler. Some scholars tell us Jesus communicated on a third grade level. Others tell us he communicated on a sixth grade level, which is that I have no idea. What I do know is he communicated in a language children could understand. After all, it was a little boy 
who brought five loaves of barley bread, barley, the bread of the poor, five loaves of barley bread and two small fish to the mighty one. I love that Jesus is so full of the kingdom of God. He comes in contact with those who are demonized and they cry out because hell trembles in the presence of the mighty one. But yet Jesus does not use his spirituality as an excuse to be creepy. He's approachable, so much so there were children felt safe around him. That's who Jesus is. We know that Jesus didn't come to create Christianity. He did not come to convert people. He did not come because he is the preferred way to heaven. He is not the relevant way. He is not the easy way. He's not the Republican way. He's not the Democratic way. He's not the Libertarian way or the Green Party way. He is the only way. For there is no other name under heaven given to men and women and children by which we must be saved. That's who Jesus is. He lived a perfect life, and he died. He died on the cross, and he was raised from the dead. He's so powerful, he stands outside of the tomb of Lazarus, and he speaks, Lazarus, come forth. I would suggest to you the reason why he summons Lazarus by name is because he's so powerful that had he just said, come forth, everyone who had ever died would have been resurrected. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And he's raised from the dead and he has so much compassion. He says, hey, wait a second, make sure you take off his grave clothes. He's merciful and he's precious and he's more real than he's ever been. That's who he is. And the Bible tells us that he is heading out of a city called Jericho. So what is Jericho? Well, you can go there to this day. It's about six miles north of the Dead Sea. Um, At the time that this is written, Jericho, even then, was built on top of this freshwater spring. If you go back to the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, perhaps you're familiar with the story. If not, that's okay. You can read it. But there's this city called Jericho, built in the middle of nowhere. It's actually built on a highway that travels east to west. It connects the highlands of Judah with the Transjordan. And because there was a freshwater spring underneath the desert floor, it became a place where travelers and passersby stopped. They hydrated, they hydrated their animals, they filled up their canteens, and it became an epicenter of trade. They began to trade in spices, they traded in beads and linens, and unfortunately, even then, they traded in human beings. And because it became an epicenter of trade, they began to fortify it, because whenever money exchanges hands, those who have ill motives oftentimes are attracted. How many of you know money often magnetizes the environment? You can tell a lot about a person when money is involved. So robbers and bandits and invading hordes began to come around this area, and so they fortify it. And they build Jericho on top of a tell, which is a really big hill, and then they built two walls. And to make a long story short, the walls were six feet thick, about as thick as I am tall. And both walls and the tell were about 11 stories tall. So it's a fairly significant wall. And one day, God communicates to his people, you can read about this in Joshua, that they are to walk around the wall and do something completely ridiculous. They are basically to worship and shout. You know, there are things that sometimes God asks us to do that seem to make no sense. 
But if we will simply obey his word, it allows God to partner with us to demonstrate his kingdom in our life. Tithing is a great example. If you think about it, it doesn't really seem to make much sense to invest 10% of what you make into the local church. You don't give your tithe to Convoy of Hope. You don't give your tithe to, the, to, to somebody on TV. You give your tithe to your local church. And above and beyond that, we give offerings because he's worthy. But it doesn't seem to make sense. I'll take 10% of what I make and give it to God. Why would I do that? It's a fresh reminder that everything we make comes from and belongs to God. But when you obey God's word, those of you who have trusted God in tithing, how many of you know when you trust God's word, even if it doesn't always make sense, he, he, he blesses you. Same thing happens in Jericho. March around the city, obey my word. It doesn't seem to make sense, but just try it. And so they do that, and you know the story perhaps. The walls fall down. In the early 20th century, two German archaeologists excavated the ancient city of Jericho. And line upon line, detail upon detail of what's recorded in Jericho, it's verified by the evidence of the archaeological dig. Now, we don't need archaeologists to verify the Bible. It's just always cool when it happens. Jericho was a city that if you wanted proof that God is real... That Yahweh, the great God Jehovah, is who he says he is. You go to Jericho. I could just imagine a dad with his two daughters and his wife on a weekend trip. Let's say it's Allie and I holding our little girls' hands back in the day. What's that, Dad? Why is that big, massive pile of stone and brick over there? Sweetie, let me tell you a story. The God you don't see is much more real than anything you do see. And one day, the great God Yahweh... When his people honored his word, caused this mighty wall as high up to the heavens to fall down. That big massive pile of stone and block and brick is evidence that God performs wonders that cannot be fathomed and miracles that cannot be counted. If you wanted proof that God was real, just take the east-west highway and stop in Jericho. You would have seen the ruins. And of all places, for the blind beggar, to be sitting by the road, it's Jericho. Perhaps under the hot Jericho sun, he pitches his head up against one of the stones that maybe even com- used to comprise the wall. What do you do? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where you perhaps say, God, if you can cause the wall to fall down, why do I sit here by the road blind and begging? Have you, have you ever been there? Have you ever find yourself, found yourself in a situation where what you're experiencing and what you see does not line up with what you know to be true about God? And there are times when God inserts his sovereign hand. There are times when God just does it. But then there are other times when much of what happens in this life is not just up to God. It is up to you. It's important that we don't use God's sovereignty as an excuse to be lazy. Is God sovereign? Does he reign supreme? Yes. But much of what happens is not just up to God. That's why we're invited to pray. That's why we are invited to fast and to sacrifice and to be generous and to trust God, even if our situation gives us a reason not to. 
Jesus is leaving Jericho, a city full of broken walls. There is proof that God is real, and here's a broken person. And according to the gospel record, this is the last time Jesus will ever pass by this way. Jesus is leaving Jericho, about to enter the city of Jerusalem to start his final week. This is the only shot the blind beggars have. And what does the text say? It says, Behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried out. At the top of their lungs, they become passionate and declare and exclaim, Jesus, have mercy on us. Isn't it interesting that the first thing they ask for is not, Jesus, heal me. The first thing they ask for is not, Jesus, can I have some money? The first thing they ask for is mercy. You know, you can tell whether or not somebody has met the real Jesus or the um, pop icon Jesus based on whether or not they're still having their breath taken away by the mercy of God. We don't deserve to be here. I thank God for his mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's interesting that they call him son of David. That's a term that only a Hebrew would have used. Son of David refers to the heritage and the lineage of the Messiah. They are not saying, Jesus, you're a good leader. They are not saying, Jesus, you're a great teacher. They are saying, you are who you say you are. You are the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You're the Son of God. You are the Messiah. They're putting their reputation on the line. Isn't it interesting that the religious leaders in Jericho are not going from street corner to street corner. Behold, the Son of David. No, a blind beggar. So in this, we learn how to see from a blind man. It's possible to see with the eyes of the heart, even when the eyes of the flesh can't quite make clear what's in front of us. You are the son of David. Have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? He keeps walking. Well, did Jesus hear them the first time? I don't have a clue. I'm sure somebody wrote a book about it. But what I do know is the crowd around them tell them to be quiet. Shut up. Stop making a spectacle of yourself and what is their response the bible says and i read it to you they cried out even more jesus son of david have mercy on me i'm talking to you today about your passion for jesus and what do you do when your situation doesn't line up with what you know to be true about god they cry out a second time and on the second time jesus stops He stops. I love that he stops. You know, when they call him the son of David, it's not just a reference to the Messiah. It's also a reference to someone who epitomizes King David. Do you remember the story? If not, that's okay. But King David, in his royal regal robes, he invites a beggar named Mephibosheth to come and sit at his table. Somebody who does not deserve to be in the presence of a king is invited to sit at the king's table and delight in the king's delicacies and have face-to-face conversation with the king. When they cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me, 
they're also making a reference to the fact that we have a king who according to Jonathan Edwards is as far above kings as he is beggars. And yet nonetheless, our king takes great pleasure in meeting with us face to face. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the text says he stops. Verse 32, he stood still. That word stood still is interesting. It means to cause to stand. It's almost as if Jesus is walking and he hits a wall. It's almost as if Jesus is walking and he throws his back out and he can't move anymore. It means to cause to stand. Something apprehends and grips the Lamb of God in such a way he is about to enter Jerusalem and start the final week of his life and he stops. If anybody had a to-do list, it's Jesus. How many of you know Jesus, for the joy set before him, endures the cross? He is already focusing on what is about to, in essence, fulfill the great joy that the Father has deposited in his heart. And what does he do? He hits a wall and he stops and he turns in the crowd and look at his response. What do you want me to do for you, verse 32 says. What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. That word eyes is interesting. That word eyes is ophthalmi. It means biological eyes. It's, it's when we go to the ophthalmologist to get a new pair of contact lenses. Lord, will you heal our physical eyes? I think that's a reasonable request. After all, they're blind. What does Jesus do? Verse 34 says, Jesus has compassion. Don't you love that he has compassion? Don't you love that Jesus doesn't just say, okay, be healed? Don't you love that Jesus has compassion? You know, there are people here who week after week you struggle with things. You're embarrassed and ashamed. Can I just tell you, when you look at the face of God, God does not look at you with a frown. God does not look at you with embarrassment. God does not look at you and think, man, last week you repented of that and you did it again. What's wrong with you, son? He doesn't do that. Does he take sin seriously? Yes. We don't use grace as an excuse to compromise. We live pure lives because that's what he deserves. He's worthy of it all. But when you look at the face of God, he smiles. Actually, Zephaniah tells us he sings over each one of us. I love that he had compassion. I love that he doesn't expect us to get everything cleaned up before we come. His first response, I would suggest to you, is always compassion. Even when he deals with sin, he deals with sin not because he is a harsh taskmaster, but because he is a compassionate father. Jesus has compassion, and what does it say? He touches their eyes. Now, you won't catch this in your English Bible. But in the Greek New Testament, there's a different word used for eyes. The blind beggars ask, will you touch our ophthalmi, our biological eyes? And Jesus has compassion on them, and he touches their omaton. That's a different Greek word for eyes, and it's the word Plato, for example, used in all of his writing to describe the eyes of the soul. 
And I would suggest to you that for just a moment, before the blind beggars see with their physical eyes, they see Jesus and the spiritual world for all that he is. He touches the eyes of their heart and immediately they receive their ophthalmi again. He deals with the spiritual before he deals with the physical, but nonetheless, he deals with the physical too. What do you do when your situation doesn't line up with what you know to be true about God? You cry out. And what I want you to catch is it's okay to cry out more than once. And what caused Jesus to stop on his way out? Was it their condition? No. What made him stop was their passion. And I really don't know if you can ever change God's mind. There are some things that are fixed. I remember as a new Christian, I used to pray for the devil to get saved. And on Sunday mornings, I would go up in our little church, and um, I, was, I was raw, man. I mean, I didn't know. I'm, I'm dropping F-bombs in prayer, Pastor. Okay, so I would go up and lift one hand to God and flip up my middle finger and point it straight at the ground and finger the devil and love God at the same time. That's me, okay? That's 17-year-old new, new Christian Heath. What do you do when people are doing that on Sunday morning? Right? You bring granny to church, and there's a boy flipping the devil the bird. I'll never forget one Sunday, Sister Davis, one of the most conservative Pentecostal women who's ever walked the face of the earth. She walked up behind me, and you could hear it, man. There were gasps in the sanctuary. People thought she's going to give Heath a spiritual spanking. And I was up there fingering the devil, loving Jesus, wearing my Grateful Dead t-shirt with a big pot leaf right here. True story. And I'm just going after Jesus. I just didn't know. And she walked up to me and put her hands on me. And she leaned in and whispered and said, Heath, I'll be your spiritual grandma. And you know what? She was. She taught me that it's okay to pray in tongues. She taught me a word that most people my age don't know, a word called tarry. You get into the presence of God and you ask and you ask and you ask and you ask. Why? Can you change his mind? I don't know. But according to Brother Andrew, you can influence his heart. And on his way out of Jericho, they cry out and he doesn't stop. Is it because he was indifferent? No, we don't find evidence of indifference in Jesus. But perhaps he didn't hear, but they cry out again and because of their passion, God stops. And if you've cried out, and if maybe you've cried out a hundred times, I guess what I want to encourage you to do is cry out again. And so, Lord, I, I want to thank you that you stop. That, Lord, when we cry out and you hear us, you stop. That, Lord, when we cry out to you, you make eye contact, eye contact with us and you ask, what can I do for you? I thank you, God, that, that you're not a, a Santa Claus, you're not a, a genie, but you are a good father. And you look at your sons and daughters, and what concerns us concerns you. And what I know, Lord, is that today, each and every one of us find conditions in our life that don't line up with your, your promise. We have prayed for our children, and yet they seem to still struggle. 
We have trusted you with our finance, and yet the breakthrough still needs to come. For some of us, we need healing in our body. And we have asked, and we have claimed promises, and we have stood confidently knowing that you are who you say you are, and yet we still wake up with discomfort and perhaps even pain. We know that there are some here today who trusted you in their marriage, and their spouse walked out. That there are some people who made a commitment and it just hasn't seemed to work out the way it should have. That there are new Christians in this room today or even listening online who thought everything would instantaneously change when they came to you. And now they're realizing that becoming a Christian does not give us amnesia. We still have to work through things. We still have to repent and say, I'm sorry. We still have to trust you, even if our situation gives us a reason not to. And with your eyes closed as you're watching, listening today, I want to ask two questions. Eyes are closed not because it's the religious thing to do, but because this is a personal response. And I'm warning you, you may be the only person who responds. And that's okay. I want to ask two questions. The first would this be this. If you would be candid and say, you know what, Heath, I, I, I want a relationship with God. I want God to be real in my life. I need the hope that only comes from Jesus. Jesus is the only hope you have in this life. It's not a mistake. It is not a weakness. The Bible calls it a sin. And a sin is anything Jesus would not do. Sometimes a sin is something we do that breaks the heart of God. Sometimes a sin is something we don't do that we should have done that breaks the heart of God. Sometimes a sin is an attitude or a, a, a thought, but at the end of the day, our sins don't turn us into bad people. Our sins kill us spiritually. They separate us from God. And what I love about Jesus is God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that anybody who believes in him does not have to perish, but we can have everlasting life. I'm asking, do you need to make things right with God? You may have been baptized in water, but you can be spiritually dead and still have baptismal waters dripping off your face. I'm not asking if you come here weekly. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? If not, he wants to know you. And if that's you, I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up real quick. Heath, remember me in prayer. I want to make things right with Jesus today. Thank you, sir. That's a good choice. Anybody else? Thank you, miss. Good choice. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Up, 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 up. Thank you. You can put them down. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. I want to ask a second question. If you would be candid and vulnerable before the eyes of the one who stops and looks at us and asks, what would you like me to do for you? I believe there are people who need to cry out again. Maybe a second time, maybe a thousandth time. But we're humble enough and willing enough to cry out again. Not because we beg, because we partner. And to everything, there is a time and a season. 
We don't beg God to manipulate and twist. We cry out to God because perhaps if this is the time and this is the season, and I believe it is because today is the day of God's favor. You say, Heath, I don't understand that. I don't understand either. All I know is it's what the Bible says. So what I don't understand will not get in the way of what I do understand. And what I do understand is I can cry out and he can stop. And if today you would say, I've got something going on in my life and I'm willing to cry out again. I I want God to perform a miracle. I'm willing to ask for a breakthrough. I'm willing to step in again for my child or my grandchild or my spouse, whatever it may be. And you may be the only one who responds. But if that's you, I wanna see your hand. We're gonna pray. Hands up all over the place. Here's what we're going to do. If your hand is up and you would be willing to receive prayer, I'm going to ask you to come really quick. And as a church, we're going to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you raise your hand and you want prayer, you come. And if you're not coming, here's your assignment. I'm going to ask you to stretch your hands out before God up to heaven. And we're all going to lift up our voice and contend for breakthrough before pastor comes.